This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We ran across an unusual approach to addressing hunger a while back. This is actually like 12 years ago. It was a restaurant with no prices, where you pay what you can afford. Some pay more so others can pay less. I remember running into a customer who couldn't quite believe the business model. Are you kidding me? Pay what you feel comfortable with? I was like, you're going to be out of business in no time. Not true. Same Cafe, it stands for So All May Eat, is still around, in the same location on Colfax. It was the first nonprofit restaurant in Colorado where people can exchange money or volunteer time for a meal. Now, Same Cafe has plans to expand and has new leadership. So we thought it was time to check back in and see what the next decade might look like. All righty. The lunch rush is just starting when we arrive. A handful of volunteers bustle around the kitchen, which sits in plain sight behind the counter where you order. Any salad for you today? Um, no. All righty, cookie? Uh, yeah, I'll do. Uh-huh. The day's menu is on a chalkboard, and every day is something new, often something kind of fancy-sounding. On the menu today, we have a Brazilian coconut shrimp and chicken stew, potato leek soup, a mixed green garden salad, a Brussels sprout, Parmesan, kale, and... She keeps listing salad. the day's choices. This is Letitia Steele, head spinach, chef at Same Cafe. She's been in the culinary world for 27 years and has worked at top restaurants in Hawaii and Colorado. So why did she choose to be Same's first full-time employee? Same Cafe gives my life purpose. It gives my food purpose. You're not just cooking for people who blindly come in and they just want to be at the next cool restaurant. They're coming in here because they need that nourishment. They need to leave here feeling healthy. This might be the only meal that they get. And it might be their only interaction with a group of humans that treat them like a person. And yet, this isn't just a place for people in dire need, says the new executive director, Brad Rubendale. We have everyone from millionaires who come in from the suburbs to business people to folks experiencing homelessness, and everyone comes in and eats together. We met a high school teacher the day we visited, saw a group of nurses on their lunch break, and we met Amy O'Connor, who's homeless. She was staying in a Denver shelter after leaving an abusive relationship. O'Connor says she eats at Same Cafe because the food is healthier than what she typically gets at a shelter. I feel like my nutritional needs um, are not met there, and um, I definitely don't want to sound ungrateful, but it's not. Sometimes I don't cons- even consider it edible. It's interesting because a lot of it is, they're both based on donations, but I mean, the quality is just like polar opposite. You know, like here I can get a variety of fresh greens and you know, fruits and vegetables. There it's like taco meat and like taco shells or like spaghetti. And then some days they just mix a bunch of stuff together and make like a sort of soup or, you know, for lunch it's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. O'Connor says she comes to Same Cafe for more than the food. She says the community here is special. She's treated with respect which can be hard to come by when you're homeless. As I've gotten, I guess you could say, like, poorer and poorer, um, you know, like, the ability to keep up your appearance change. A lot of people don't know, like, can't tell I'm homeless, but some people can, and it's just, like, the difference, I guess, in the way that people treat you day to day. Like, you you might ask someone for directions or for the time, and 
they just like they're like oh crap should this chick's homeless and they get a little scared and they just like walk faster and like ignore you but then on the on the flip side of that with guys who like harass women on the streets they're they think that they can get away with more with you because you're homeless so i've had a lot of instances here especially like on colfax street like the other day some guy like lunged at me outside at the mcdonald's and like tried to grab my breast and i had to like hit him basically push him away off of me and like ran into the mcdonald's so uh yeah <laughs> it's really dehumanizing um yeah to, you know to say the least especially if you're a trauma victim and then um so you don't interact with the world the same as other people as it is on the daily and then to top it off to have to deal with like people harassing you you know just because you don't have a car or you don't live in a nice area or whatever the reason is like it adds to the toll at the end of your day of your overall experience and it's just like uh, it's just like it's really taxing on your well-being so o'connor wiped away tears as she spoke brad rubendale the head of the cafe offered her a hug we also met patrick hale who's been volunteering at same cafe for years well, for me, I, I typically open up on Monday morning and, you know, make sure all, you know, tables and seats are clean. I moved all the tables outdoors and whatnot. I, I put about an hour in, and that entitles me to two meals. Hale recounted one of the most meaningful experiences he's had here. About six months ago, I had a bike crash. I got hit by a car. So I was laid up. Couldn't really walk or anything. And, but I was able to get up. And the first place I went was come down here, and they welcomed me. And I said, well, you know, I can't really get up and walk around any. And they said, that's fine. We'll just have you, you know, doing utensils. Maybe you can roll utensils or something. But, you know, you don't need to have to walk around. And that really um, that really tugged at my heartstrings. I mean, you know, to say, yeah, you know, we can use you either way. A new addition since we came to Same Cafe a decade ago is a token program. Each wooden token says one free meal at Same Cafe. Brad Rubendale explains. They're kind of multi-purpose. One is if you work a little extra, we can give someone a meal token. Um, but then we also are using them to let people have an option for giving people something on the streets. So if people have the means, we're asking them to cover the full cost of one meal that it costs us to deliver the meal, which is about $12. And then they can carry this around and give it to someone on the streets. Because I know some people are, don't necessarily want to give cash to people on the streets for a variety of reasons. And I have no opinion on that one way or another. But this does give people an option to connect someone to a healthy meal as well. What are the challenges of this work? Um, I, I wonder if sometimes people come in who are struggling with mental illness or and as a result maybe more difficult than the average customer. Um, you know, th- this is a, a restaurant and this is a, a charity. Yeah, you know, it's Some people see that as a challenge, but I see it as an opportunity to love people that don't usually get to access that love. So we we understand that everyone has a story, and we try to approach everyone from a trauma understanding perspective. So if someone is yelling at us, it's probably not about us. They've probably experienced something else today or in their life that really is challenging, and they're taking it out on us because we're the closest person. So... um, Yes, it's challenging, but we also recognize that everyone has a story and we want them to be able to express 
express their story here. And nine times out of ten, if you if you uh, respond in kindness, they kind of deflate and they'll share what's actually going on. Um, of course, we do have the people that are experiencing mental illness that is challenging in here at times, but we just have really strong boundaries. If people are not at their best, we don't l- allow them to eat here, so we'll give them a granola bar and let them come back a different day. Um, so that includes if they're impaired from alcohol or drugs or if they have a mental health issue that prohibits them from participating. Because we are such a participation-based restaurant, everyone here is participating, whether that's through giving some money or time, but everyone has to participate. And if you can't participate, it's not going to work. Our community doesn't work. Rubendale's plans include more locations and a food truck. I would love to see a sane cafe in every major metropolitan area or a version of this. And there are over 50 that have been inspired by sane cafe in the country now. Um, I would love to be able to really capture the secret sauce and make sure that gets transferred. Because, you know, there's a couple ways this model can go off the rails. One is it can be a place where wealthy people feel good about eating, but it doesn't actually achieve the mission. The other is it can become a soup kitchen and it never actually is sustainable. So we feel like, of course, we're biased, but we feel like we've really done a great job of keeping that 50-50 balance of people who love what we do and give extra and people who need what we do and are able to give a little bit less. That is Brad Rubendale, executive director of Same Cafe in Denver. Same stands for So All May Eat. It was the first nonprofit restaurant in Colorado, and there are photos from our visit at CPR.org. When you start a business, you hope it'll make money fast. That was not the case for a Colorado brand you see all over, Bobo's Oat Bars in Boulder. Founder Beryl Stafford was a single mom struggling to make ends meet when she started Bobo's 15 years ago. Now she's in most major grocers. Bobo's is the subject of The Disruptors today, our coverage of entrepreneurs. We visited the Bobo's facility in Boulder, where they bake, package, and ship these bars. So this is the main entrance to production here at Bobo's. Tom Kabancic is the production supervisor and our tour guide. So you're going to see us making a couple different flavors along the product line. Today that includes coconut almond chocolate chip, a relatively new addition. Here, a small production staff hand-bakes more than 100,000 bars a day. Founder Beryl Stafford was on the tour with us. This is how I did it 15 years ago in my home kitchen. And this is the original pans I had, and now instead of four pans, I got like 4,000 of them. Kabancic explains each step. So this is, we're going to weigh out all the raw ingredients. We use these two big white mixers here, kind of like your KitchenAid mixer at home. Essentially, we dump all the dough into this big big cylinder here, and it's going to force all the dough into the bottom. And you can see the way it comes out onto the conveyor is the familiar Bobo size and shape. That is a small rectangle, which rarely looks the same twice. They like to say that every bar is a little different. And we're running with four big ovens. Um, You can see the four right here. You can see inside the windows. Essentially what these uh, ovens do is they pick up the racks and they spin them for the duration of the cook time. Um, So they cool at room temperature. And then after that, they go into our cooler for about 20 minutes. Uh, We get them below 60 degrees so that they're safe for wrapping. And we have a couple ladies here that are uh, kind of hand inspecting, and they're also placing them on the conveyor. Then after that, collect them in bins, and we move it to the boxing line. And the machine does most of the rest for us. It's going to unfold the box, 
glue one side shut, shove the bars in there, seal the other end. We weren't using this when I started. This was all by hand. So glue sticks and people, you know, just counting, putting them in boxes, gluing it shut. And that wasn't that long ago. Yes, Bobo's has been in business for more than a decade, but it didn't really take off until recently. Founder Beryl Stafford is with me now in the studio. Hi, Beryl. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You started Bobo's during a real transition in your life. Tell me more about what was going on for you then. So I found myself to be a recently uh, single mom of two teenage kids, and I had to sort of reinvent myself. And your kids were part of the seed for this product. Yeah. So my oldest daughter's nickname is Bobo. She opened up a cookbook one rainy Sunday afternoon and said, Mom, I'm thinking about making these gooey oat treats. And I said, you know, knock yourself out. And that was our humble beginning. How did that treat turn out? So um, actually, it was made with corn syrup and... um, Refined sugars, dripping with butter. So it was pretty good. (laughs) Okay. Not the recipe today, but the inspiration for the recipe. And I think it says on every box of bars that this is how it happened, that your Mm -hmm. your daughter was the seed for this. Yeah. So she little did she know she was going to create this big monster 16 years later. (laughs) Little did she know. How did you get the idea to go bigger with this? Um, Well, you know, I was so passionate about it in the beginning, and I was the sole employee for a couple of years. And uh, I saw the reaction that the fans and the stores, the customers had, and um, I knew I had something. How did you sell those first bars? So a lot of shoe leather, but um, I was the chief salesperson, the only salesperson for about eight years. So I just um, walked around, walked into stores, and then eventually got on airplanes, walked into stores and handed out samples. And It was like cold calls. Yeah, yeah. And how were those? Set the scene for us when you'd walk into a place. Awful. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. You get a lot of no's. Um, but, you know, it. I, I just realized that I had something and uh, I, I wasn't um, proficient in business or sales or food. So I just figured it out myself and... When you say it was awful, what would people tell you? Uh, Go away. Not now. You know, this isn't a good time. I've realized later that that's not exactly the great technique just to walk in cold call Mm -hmm. um, with food. But um, what's a better technique? um, Well, you set up an appointment. Okay. Bring your salesperson with you, maybe. (laughs) But you obviously got enough yeses from the right people to move forward. Who did those yeses come from? So in the beginning, you know, it was local only. And all the little uh, coffee shops and mom and pop grocery stores loved them. This is in Boulder. In Boulder. Yeah. And then, you know, I went statewide. And when I went into Whole Foods, which, you know, that's that's who you need. um, They said, great, we've been waiting for you to come in. Let's bring them in. But we're going to take them in regionally. Oh, so, it's so just, Whole Foods was aware of the products because of the like coffee shop right, presence. Right, right. Um, we had a local co-op back then in Boulder, and the buyer at Whole Foods had been buying them at the, cop, at the co-op. And um, so she brought them in, which was a lot of luck. I don't know if it would be that easy these days. Why and, wouldn't uh, it be that easy these days? Um, well, obviously with Amazon coming on, it's a lot more corporate um, I don't think they let little local bakers like me in so easily. Huh. 
Uh, so you started in Whole Foods regionally. It was not a national thing. Is, is that a way of doing a kind of dry run for the company or what? Um, yeah, I think they were testing the market. They said, you know, get your packaging together. We need these to be able to ship and stay fresh. At that time, I had saran wrap on them, which gave it a three-day shelf life. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, they test the market. And then it's up to me to get them in California and get them in Chicago and New York so you had to do more of the shoe leather to to get beyond the region. Right. And I I don't know if that process works now. The with, same way. Um, yeah. And that was 16 years ago. So that was still people were learning about vegan and, and um, organic foods. So for a decade, you were a cottage business. And in the last few years, as you've said, as I've said, Bobo's has really taken off. Uh, now you can find the bars in almost any grocery store. During that decade, did you ever have doubts that this might not take off? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, I was so passionate about it, and I I, I wanted it so bad, but I was working in a vacuum, sort of. And What does that mean? Um, well, you, you doubt yourself when you're not surrounded by a team of talent and um, people who have done this before. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just figuring it out. You majored in history at CU Boulder. You right. didn't have a formal business education. Where, no. where did you most notice the deficits uh, that, that you needed some support or some expertise? Well, I guess, um, uh, you know, I was just learning about food safety and, huh. you know, food quality, food manufacturing. I didn't understand how the machines worked. I didn't understand how the film worked. I mean, I guess in all aspects, I I guess my sales technique was the best that I knew. So that was um, that was probably my best trait, I guess. Looking back on that, and I was good at trade shows. I did all the trade shows myself, so I learned I learned that whole shtick. You know, that whole shtick. <laughs> what well, what might your shtick sound like? Um, Pretend I'm at the trade show. What what would you have said to me if you came up? Well, I think people liked the story, you know, that I innocently figured this out. And they thought, wow, well, they taste great also, but the story's just as good as the flavor. So we'll give her a shot. We'll give her a shot. People liked that story. You're listening to Colorado Matters and our series, The Disruptor, is about entrepreneurs in the state. And today, my guest is Beryl Stafford, who's the founder of Bobo's, those oat bars that you may see in grocery stores. And this whole time, uh, you're traveling across the country, you're going, as you say, to trade shows, and you're a single mom. Yeah. How did you juggle that? It was hard. Um, You just... You have to master time management. I worked at night a lot after the kids went to bed. I was up till midnight doing books. Um, And, you know, it took a toll on me personally. I think it drove my friends crazy because I was stressed out for years. (laughs) Hmm. What about turning a profit? How long did it take? Um, hmm, Let's see. I would say it was about seven years after and then I had a pretty good, after I started, you know, and then I moved into kitchen and then kitchen number two. And um, I started to see a profit after about seven years. And um, That is more industrial kitchens? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, commercial kitchen uh-huh. that I shared with other food manufacturers. And then I, I moved into a bigger one with fewer mo- fewer food manufacturers. 
And then until I got to one that I, I owned myself. Did you that think was, that a profit would come faster? Um, you know, I, I didn't. I had no plan. Huh. You had, yeah. you, there was no business plan at the beginning? Nope. I didn't know how to write a business plan. <laughs> and I just came across my marketing budget from about four years ago written on a – just on a piece of paper with pencil. Yeah. What did so, you think of it when you saw I, it I framed later? it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is, what is it saying? It makes me laugh. It, it's, it's, I chuckle because, you know, here I was writing my business plan or my marketing plan on a piece of paper with a pencil, but it was still having significant growth at the time, like 48%, 60%, 50%. You so. decided a couple of years ago to hire a CEO with more business experience. Mm-hmm. How was that um, letting go in, in some ways, that surrendering of control? Because you'd done it yourself for so long. Right. Um, I think after so long, I was ready. <laughs> okay. I had no question that it was the right decision. You Maybe know? part of the stress and the exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was toying with even selling the whole thing before that. I, I just had all these ideas floating around in my head. And then, um, you know, when I found the CEO, it, it was just such a great fit with that certain person. Can you give me an example of a big challenge you faced or a decision you had to make that was really difficult? Um, let's see, throughout these years, when I moved into bigger kitchens and bigger facilities and had to um, decide whether I was going to continue self-manufacturing or uh, have a a co-packer is the word. So have some hire another manufacturing facility to do all of our baking. Then we just uh, focus on sales and marketing. Huh. That was a tough decision because I had to come up with some money to buy the equipment, bigger space, hire more people. And um, I was advised over the years not to do that because most companies don't do their own manufacturing. Um So it was tough to go against all my advisors at the time to – um, don't try to do this, you know, yourself. Just go hire someone in Chicago to put these through a, a, a sort of factory process, right? Although it's handmade. Still. Yeah. So I insisted on having that handmade look, um, as they were from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Why was that important to you? Um, I just didn't want to change that look or the quality, the handmade, homemade look. I never wanted to change it. That's what it was. About a year ago, you got $8 million in investment from a group based in Boulder. It's a huge development for your company. What do you think the next year is going to look like for Bobos? Oh, we're really busy. We have lots of innovation in the pipeline. So we've got some products that we're unveiling in a couple of days at Expo West in Anaheim. Are they oat bars? Uh, it's actually a toaster pastry, I'll tell you now, because it's in two days when we're going to unwrap them. <laughs> Is this like a, a, a Pop-Tart? It's like a Pop-Tart. It's like a Pop-Tart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, a non-genetically modified Pop-Tart. <laughs> You've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Beryl, thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Beryl Stafford is the founder of the Boulder-based Bobo's Company. They make oat bars. And she was the focus today of our entrepreneurship series, The Disruptors. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
There used to be this little FM station in Ward, Colorado, west of Boulder. It was called Way High Radio. Its DJs played all sorts of music, told you about local events. It broadcast from an old camper trailer. We're talking about maybe 100 square feet for the studio. But the camper's gone now, and the signal's no longer transmitted over the air. Way High Radio is what the FCC calls an unlicensed radio station, a.k.a. pirate radio. Chris Walker writes about a crackdown in the alt-weekly Westward. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Uh, pirate radio stations are nothing new. Way High Radio, which now streams online only, I think. Uh, it was on the air for 20 years or so in Ward. So what's going on now that attracted you to this story? So the FCC, the Federal Communications uh, Commission, is the federal agency that regulates the airwaves. And recently in Colorado, they've cracked down on these pirate stations. So in early January, late January, rather, they shut down four stations, including the one that you just mentioned, Way High Radio. Four stations along the front range. Right. Yeah, mostly centered around Boulder County. And has that forced them all to be online at this point? They are all online because... That is sort of an odd an oddity in itself is that internet streams are not regulated, so they can legally run those. But the FCC has been monitoring these FM broadcasts and continues to send threats uh, to these stations, trying to dissuade them from going back on air. You have in your article the opening scene of this crackdown on Way High Radio in particular. How do they find the stations and how do the stations try to outpace them in some respects. Way High Radio wasn't particularly hard to find. In fact, on their website, they listed where the studio was. But uh, sometimes they find these stations um, in the same way that uh, by triangulating signals. So they, they try to figure out exactly where these FM broadcasts are coming from. And that is where they will post uh, notices of violation. Okay, so more about Way High Radio in Ward. You interviewed a DJ known as Apache, mm-hmm. and she really sees the station as a lifeline. It is a means of survival. People don't have TVs here. They don't have telephones. Um, we have a community of over 55 people that are over the age of 60. Some of them don't have vehicles even. Um, but it's very easy, and we've made it thus far. If you need a radio, come to the station and get one. We'll give you a radio, yeah, we, or we'll find one at the thrifty. Two AA batteries, as opposed to trying to have telephone service, yeah. internet service. None of it is is uh, solid up here. You write that the station gave tours to students who wanted to learn more about radio. Mm-hmm. Candidates for public office came by for an interview. There were even annual fundraisers for the station. But were you able to learn if the service was imp- as important to the community as they said that it was? Way High Radio is an interesting case. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons for starting these stations. And you have some stations that are truly anarchist in nature, where it's uh, these pirate DJs, and they tend to be very colorful. That was a fun part of covering this story. Uh, You have some stations where um, people don't believe in regulation. Way High Radio really was a community resource. And the way that that was impressed upon me most during my reporting is that they provided critical emergency information during a series of natural disasters, including the 2013 floods, as well as the more recent Cold Creek fire. So not only were they having candidates for local office come in and interview, but during the fire, 
they were they were having firefighters come in the studio and give on the ground updates so that residents knew where the fire was, how it was developing, and it was the only source of up-to-date information in Ward, which is quite remarkable. But let's be clear here. Pirate radio stations operate illegally over Colorado airwaves. They're not in compliance with the FCC, which regulates all sorts of things. I mean, think about song royalties, emergency alerts, Mm -hmm. even vulgarity. Let's listen to this station ID from a different pirate signal. Pirate Radio FM. You know where we're at? 8,000 feet, mother 8,000 feet above sea level. That's what I'm talking about. Up here, very high, 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 high. In the Rocky Mountains, 103.1 Radio KNED. Radio KNED. I mean, that went out over the airwaves without the bleeps. Those are bleeps we added. Obviously, the FCC has noticed. In fact, when a local newspaper wrote about a pirate radio station and where to find it on the dial, the paper got a letter from the FCC, specifically Commissioner Michael O'Reilly. What were his concerns? I'm actually going to quote him. He wrote, Pirate radio should never be romanticized or its negative impact minimized. In learning of a pirate station, the proper action should have been to alert the Federal Communications uh, Commission's field office in Denver, which is... Honestly, a remarkable thing for the FCC to tell a publication um, that they should be <laughs> alerting them when they learn of a pirate radio station. That it was essentially the newspaper's job to tell on the station. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. Which, I, I mean, that violates, you know, if, if you believe in objectivity and journalism, um, that seems to violate that. Um, but fundamentally, the FCC's concerns, uh, if you go on to read the quote, seem pretty important. These scoff laws often don't pay any fees as required by law or keep any paperwork and may expose listeners to potential fraudsters and ripoff artists. Tell me more about the FCC's concerns here. Well, I, I think so. Part of it is emergency broadcasting, and that is one of the roles of FCC regulated stations. Um, of course, it's ironic that Ward was providing the, that Ward's pirate station was providing that service in themselves, though exceptional, you say, perhaps, perhaps pirate so. radio stations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you played that uh, sort of colorful radio drop, which, I mean, there there are also reasons to um, to protect various listeners from uh, unregulated content. Um, and, and the idea of protecting other frequencies that have ownership of the dial as well, I suppose. That's correct. Right. So radio is a commercial enterprise. And so someone has to give out licenses and uh, and figure out which stations can take various frequencies. But pirate radio operators often see their work as a cause. So I want you to tell me about a man known as Monk. You say he's commonly referred to as the godfather of pirate radio in this area. And you write that he initially intended to play by the FCC's rules, but wound up going a different way. Right. So uh, we're going to get a bit technical here. Okay. But um, in 1996, the uh, Telecommunications Act passed. And there used to be a lot more independent radio stations. That act allowed corporations to buy as many signals as they wanted around the country. And so all these independent stations started getting gobbled up. 
Um, and the the big example is Clear Channel, now known as iHeartRadio, uh, who amassed as many as 1,200 stations at, at one point. And Monk did not like this trend. Neither did the FCC. And that is what's so interesting. So they allowed in 2000 what are known as low-powered FM signals. And they hoped that local stations um, would apply for these licenses. The problem is, in a crowded market like Denver and Boulder, um, and then here's another irony, it was actually NPR that, uh, that lobbied Congress that these stations could only be allowed if they had three open signals on either side. So what that meant is that in a market like Denver, there just weren't that many signals available. So uh, Monk thought that he was going to... Monk is this godfather figure in pirate radio lore around Colorado. Hmm. He thought he was going to get one of these applications, and he couldn't. And um, by by accounts that I heard, um, these applications or frequency openings only happen uh, in a market like Denver Boulder every five years or so. So it's it's actually very difficult to do things by the book. And so he felt that he had to go underground. That Yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> All right. I, I want to say, you talked about NPR making a lobbying effort, uh, CPR not involved in that lobbying effort, just to be clear. Uh, a while back, this sense of mission led pirate radio stations on the front range to form something of a network called the Colorado Community Radio Network. Um, Knowing it was illegal to have unregistered over-the-air signals, why did these stations join forces and raise their profiles? The main reason they formed this network was actually because even at even at their largest, these stations might have a dozen DJs or so. Um, and so usually they don't have a live on-air personality 24-7, which makes for more compelling radio rather than just playing a music playlist. And so they realized, especially through internet streams, that they could broadcast each other's content. So the idea was that uh, the studios could actually share their live shows. And so they started... Uh, they kind of traded programming like a network. They traded programming like a network. That's that's exactly right. So a station in Netherland, KNED, um, who we heard that funny audio drop from, they might broadcast stuff from Way High Radio, or Boulder Free Radio might broadcast stuff from KNED. So that was the uh, basis for forming that network. All right. Uh, These DJs still use aliases on air, and Way High Radio has moved its camper, I understand, to a hidden location. Uh, What could happen to DJs and stations if the agency were to find them? The FCC has sent warnings, uh, um, threatening $100,000 fines and up to a year in prison. So that's also part of the nature of pirate radio is that the actual identities of the pi- these pirates are really slippery. So um, they only use DJ names, and it can be quite difficult for the FCC to figure out who these people actually are. And, and even in the last two decades, I mean, there have been personal vendettas between individual FCC agents and pirates um, as they play this cat and mouse game. Did you have any fear that you'd be glorifying people who are breaking the law? No, um, in part because I think this story is newsworthy. You have this crackdown, and a lot of times, um, a lot, a lot of times, quick news stories are are missing the uh, the depths and motivations of people involved in that underworld, mm. and. 
frankly, it seemed like a perfect story for an alt-weekly. I suppose there are some who are going to ask, why not just uh, go online as they have and be content there? And I suppose part of the answer uh, for the station in Ward is that not everyone has streaming access. Any other reasons? Right. I was just I was going to mention that, too, that you have older folks who aren't on the Internet. Um, well, I mean, one reason is you can't listen in your car. Uh, I think, I mean, even your station would know increasingly listenership is people who are driving around. Um, so you can stream in your car. Uh, I guess if you phone. have a, if you have a smartphone, yeah. Um, so that, I mean, it so all that's the if, right? It all mm-hmm. comes down to equipment. Um, and and you know, if you're going back to the stations that have sort of a anarchist ethos, I mean, frankly, they enjoy the fact that they're flaunting authority and are broadcasting over the air. And one DJ, DJ Wiley at Way High Radio, says they might be off the air for now. If we have an emergency we will turn on and go back on air and protect our community no matter what they think they can do. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Chris Walker covers news and music at Westward, and we talked about his story, Will the FCC Sink Pirate Radio in Colorado? We'll have a link at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Tom Wassinger has spent a lifetime in the music business. He's won three Grammys for his work producing albums by several American Indian artists. He founded the Lost Angel Stone Ensemble, which made music with resonating rocks. Here's what that sounds like. Wassinger and his wife, who live outside Boulder, also traveled the world to record dozens of lullabies sung in native languages. That resulted in two successful albums, The World Sings Goodnight, Volumes 1 and 2. Wassinger's also an accomplished guitarist, but he's never put out an album of his own compositions on that instrument until now. This is A Flood in Psyche's Temple from his new album, Amended Soul. And Tom Wassinger, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. You were persuaded to do this album, I understand, by a former Boulder musician who now runs a record label in Nashville. Uh, You'd produced him when he was in high school, and he wanted you to record an album of instrumental guitar music. Why? What what opportunity did he see? Well, he he called me uh, probably five, six months ago and said... um, uh, he had he had you know pursued after finishing studying music in college he had pursued uh, his own music career and setting up his own record company and all of the modern avenues for creating revenue with music and so he had uh, called me and said look we're doing very well we had 32 million streams last year and um, he had a whole stable of artists he was working with and he said some of the most popular playlists in the world of streaming are instrumental around the world. And he said, we have no artists on our label like that. Do you want to do a record for us? That is to say, would you be 
a musician purely for people to stream? And, and would you make instrumental guitar music for that? Well, we, we settled on guitar music because of the fact, you know, it was a marketing thing. He, he looked at what uh, these most popular playlists contained, and, and there were these solo guitar things, um, these solo guitar playlists were quite successful. One is called Acoustic Guitar Cafe. Here's the description. Sit back, relax, and have a cup of coffee while listening to melodic acoustic instrumental guitar tracks. Uh, perfect for your workday, resting, reading, entertaining guests, or having quiet acoustic instruments during dinner. This is uh, specifically a Spotify playlist. And so it's, it's basically background music. Did, did, did you listen to it before you started recording the new album? I, I did indeed. And so because I've produced instrumental, you know, everything from rocks to you name it, and I've done lots of film scoring. And so I had vast uh, s- stores of instrumental music of all varieties. Um, and over the over, since the time I was – he's only about 27. And since I was his age, I've been writing also solo guitar pieces for yeah. my own pleasure. And I had many recordings of those, numerous of which I re-recorded for him and uh, – and so uh, we just decided that that would be a good direction to go. What did you think when you listened to these streaming channels? Oh, there were things I thought were uh, boring and pablum and other things that I thought were compelling and interesting. And, and it's just like the world of music. They, they, fortunately, they're not all one thing. Was there a part of you that said, I want to be foreground music, not background music? Oh, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've had a long career in music, and I, and I don't necessarily have great ambitions to, uh, to be the the focal point of anyone's evening uh, entertainment. <laughs> Let's listen to some of the music you recorded. This is called Requiem for Milo. <laughs> that you wrote a while ago in the 1990s tell us about it um my wife and i have three children we had three children but the second one was stillborn and um and it was a little baby boy and so uh it was of course was a source of great grief for both of us and so uh um this is one way, you know, to deal for me for me to deal with uh, um, great emotional stress is to express myself musically, and so that this piece was written then. How was it to revisit it? Um, you know, having 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 basically dealt with the grief at the time and and, and worked out and ex- accepted that chapter of my life, to go back and revisit it, to be re- revisit it, was more. Um, uh, an exercise in, in in making sure that I had a really strong recording that was a, a good uh, representation of what that was and that experience was and what the piece was. So these are songs uh, perhaps that you'd recorded but never released or had? In numerous cases, they were they were about half the tunes I re-recorded because I didn't have recordings I was pleased with. And the, the other half were recordings I had done recently enough that I felt good about the recordings. Huh. How cool to just have realized that there's a new market for you. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> there's one very haunting track on the album called No People, No Roads. Let's listen. Thank you. 
I understand this was recorded in The Tank, which is in Rangeley. It's an abandoned railroad water tank with really heavenly acoustics. What was it like to record inside? Well, um, I've been going up the tank for many years, long before it became an official nonprofit and an official center for musical arts. And um, in the old days, the tank had a single little porthole, just barely enough to fit a guitar through. And in those days, it was I, it was wonderful. And now, of course, it's become an official musical center, and they have a big door and and, uh, and a studio and all the rights. They have a little studio in in, a, in an outside uh, little old uh, shipping container. They put a studio in there. And um, but recording in the tank is is a wondrous experience because you can't go in there with anything premeditated. If you try to play your favorite song in there, it it may not work out at all because every sound you make reflects around your head for the next twenty to thirty seconds. The songs on Amended Soul are now streaming online. And in fact, some are on that Spotify playlist, Acoustic Guitar Cafe. Are the royalties pouring in, Tom Wassinger? Not yet. And it takes, I mean, from my point of view, you know, anything that streams in once a month is swell. And and it just helps keep the boat afloat. And uh, I, I never really expected them to stream in in huge numbers. And uh, like the royalty checks that I used to get 20 years ago. But it's it's just nice now that I'm getting a little older to think that maybe this is something that could be sustained over the course of years and bring a little income in every month. And uh, Tell me more about the old days of getting royalties. Well, uh, in 1993, I produced a record, the first The World Sings Goodnight, and we did an interview – at KCFR, the former CPR, uh-huh. which 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 was on All Things Considered, they, I did the physically did the interview there because they had a satellite uplink, and um, and that record hit the charts. It was right before Christmas. It went nuts. The phone they couldn't keep up with all the phone calls at NPR in Washington. It it was in their catalog, so it was it was the first very significant commercial success in my career as a producer, and so. Um, uh, you can imagine that record having become so popular among the kind of audience that NPR solicits um, that there were some fairly large royalty checks that came in those days. And there were physical copies at that point, Physical copies in those days. You could buy one. And that's not the case with this album. It's it's uh, purely digital. Is that right? I, it's true. It's it's available only in streaming. And the only physical copy exists I just handed to your producer, David. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think solo guitar music is so popular? Well, you know, the guitar is such a personal instrument. And when you play it, it resonates in uh, your chest. And, and there's something about it that's much, much more intimate uh, I think, and that comes across in the music that's written for that instrument, as opposed to a piano, which is generally the music is written in a more formal setting. A piano is something large. You can't pick it up and take it to a mountaintop and play there. And so the that's sort of very personal intimacy that happens when you play a guitar, I think, translates into the compositions, and, and I think people feel that. Well, Tom Wassinger, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Reiner, and thank you for having me. I look forward to drinking coffee with your music. That's the suggestion anyway from okay, Spotify. Well, very, okay, very well then. <laughs> Tom Mossinger's new album is called Amended Soul.
Wassinger lives in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.